What is a sustainable table? That is what we're digging into on today's show. Welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host. Today is show 336 and I have a repeat guest with me today, Jade Miles. You might remember Jade uh, from the first time I had her on the show discussing the book that came out a couple of years ago that she wrote called Future Steading. Uh, Jade is now the CEO of Sustainable Table, working to garner investment to move the regenerative farming agenda forward for the health of people and planet and to really help define what a sustainable table and future looks like uh, here in Australia. But if you're from somewhere overseas, this conversation is definitely applicable to you too, because you can't walk away from hearing a conversation like this without feeling like there is something you can do, either as a farmer or as a city peep, supporting farmers to do the work they need to do to turn the story around from what's happening on so many of the landscapes around the world. Uh, Jade is definitely a polyjobist, as uh, she says in her bio, uh, the CEO of Sustainable Table. She also has Black Barn Farm, uh, which is a biodiverse orchard, nursery and workshop space in northeastern Victoria. So if you're in that region of the world, I would always uh, check out their website to see if they've got anything coming up. Uh, she's a force for good, uh, as, as can only be apparent when you start to listen to her speak and you can hear and feel the energy in her words. So I'm really looking forward to bringing this chat to you because we're nutting down what the idea of a sustainable table looks like uh, and also talking about some really big impact stuff. I'm talking, you know, how do we get investment for the good work that needs to be done and how when there isn't a huge amount of profit appeal often in farming, which is why, of course, the climate conversation has been largely corporatized because then it allows it to stay high profit processed food and factory oriented with things like synthetic uh, uh, proteins and, and uh, plant friendly um, processed foods. Uh, today, we're really looking at how we get this off the ground uh, and what it's going to take to do that and what Sustainable Table uh, is doing. They've produced a fantastic report uh, researching this very thing. And I think anyone who's into Regen and wants to see what they can do uh, is going to love this one, no matter where you are in the world. And we also talk about some of the more philosophical aspects of what is enough, because a huge part of moving towards a regenerative future is less consumption. Uh, and uh, we both share some of the ideas around what enough looks like for us. So I hope you enjoy that. Before, of course, I hook into that, I want to remind you that we have some wonderful uh, show sponsors that help me put this show on every single week. And uh, with their help, you have, of course, uh, the Oz Climate brand. So that's an Australia only offer. 
And this one is specifically for their Winix air purifiers and dehumidifiers to help you clean up your indoor air and prevent mold growth. Uh, obviously, an air purifier is to clean up the air that's existing. The dehumidifier is your mold prevention strategy. So it depends on what you need based on what you need to prioritize between those two types of appliances. And I was having a chat to a friend uh, the other day about how you can feel guilty buying appliances. Sometimes it feels like just a big thing that's going to end up in landfill. But then, you know, I was I was nutting out the pros and cons, and I was thinking, gosh, if I get a de- if I have a dehumidifier and I'm not allowing mold to grow in my place, then that means I'm well, a so I can do really good work and continue to spread the low tox message. B It also means my clothes and my shoes aren't getting damaged by mold in terms of then having to deal with them or throw them away or any other building materials or my bed, for example. So getting one appliance so that a whole bunch of things don't go moldy and need to be thrown out can kind of be a bit of a win there, I think, uh, in terms of what wins overall on the sustainability front. So you have 10% all year round with the code LOWTOXLIFE. You can use it on their website, ozclimate.com.au, and it works also on phone orders if you want to have a bit of a chat about what you need for your space and situation. Then we have a beautiful new Australian brand uh, coming on board to support the show, and they are called Earth Tank. It's a wonderful local couple who have a big dream for everybody to access clean, gorgeous, mineral-filled water without all of the nasties of herbicide, pesticide residue, harmful bacteria, chlorine, heavy metals, lead, for example, and fluoride. And uh, what I love is their uh, passion for the aesthetic because I have had feedback over the years that people would like more options that look really lovely in their kitchen. And these handmade ceramic water filters really do look gorgeous. I have a stunning black one that I'm looking at right now that has actually been given to me by Earth Tank with great thanks uh, because I cannot uh, recommend anything that I haven't tried for sure and tested. The questions that I asked them, the certificates of authenticity around their lead statement, fluoride removal, and a whole bunch of other stuff means that I can hand on heart say that this is an excellent water filter option. Uh, So you have 5% off. Uh, These things are handmade and obviously quite expensive to produce. So while the discount isn't huge, it helps you make your low-tox swap a little bit easier. And I can vouch for the fact that it's a beautiful brand, uh, new on the scene, made by wonderful, passionate people. Uh, and earthtank.com.au is the website and your code is LOWTOXLIFE. So this offer is available for the whole of June. I do encourage you to go check out uh, the range. It's just two to choose from and uh, and we've been loving it. And uh, I've been using a little jug and a mini um, filter on our ledge because we're in our tiny little apartment that we've been in since the mold saga 
and uh, and gosh, it's nice to have a nice big uh, a big water filter again with twelve liters, and to not have to constantly be filling it up. I have to say, I'm very grateful, and uh, my son and husband have commented several times that they're loving it as well. So I urge you to check it out. Earth Tank is the name. EarthTank.com.au, and for five percent off, use the code Low Tox Life for the rest of the month of June. And that's it. Let's talk to Jade Miles and create a sustainable table together. The lovely Jade Miles. How are you doing? I'm great. I've got the sun on my face. I'll just move the curtain so I can see you. Oh, that's all good. I'm so excited to have you back on the show. The first time you're on the show, it was at the precipice of launching your beautiful book, Future Steading, and there were still so many projects you had in the works to complete your vision for Black Barn Farm. Where are you at with all of that? Let's start there. Uh, yeah, future setting, that went bang. And I did an Australian tour in amongst all of the COVID lockdowns, which was exciting, but um, had amazing and beautiful big and small conversations sort of all over Australia. I did nearly 200 community conversations Um which was great because every conversation was slightly different because it was place-based and the language of that community became really apparent and the areas of, you know, greater strength in that community were really clear. I couldn't so agree with you more, Jade. It's it's when you see things come, like a similar theme come to life in different ways in different communities, you see that if we work from our overlaps, that's how we actually drive forward because everyone can do something from a different angle in a different place. Absolutely. And and sometimes big, sometimes small, but equally powerful and really important in terms of just creating the sum of the parts that, that can slowly turn the needle to, to shift serious change. And then um, we went and did an East Coast USA tour um, and went all up and down um, the East Coast, which was incredible, totally different to the Australian tour because the conversations were different and the political arena was different and uh, I think they're probably a little bit further along, a little more sophisticated in their pushback on authoritarianism. So it was a really different experience. But um, all of that culminated in um, really, well, I did an audio book of it. I've recorded my own audio book, so that was intriguing. My voice wasn't as croaky as it is at the moment. I've been talking, <laughs> I've been on the road for weeks and weeks and weeks with Sustainable Table and my voice is a bit husky. But that all... Um, culminated in us opening for our first full season here at Blackburn Farm, our first full UPIC season. So we've just done that. We just wrapped that a couple of weeks ago that was sort of sprinkled with a whole heap of skills-based workshops. And it's been a really big couple of years, but an incredible couple of years, and I've just started writing my next book. So it's exciting but full. So I'm just sort of pegging out what the next two years look like. Yeah, well, they, they sound full for sure. And so Sustainable Table now has you uh, as a, a captain some of some sort in their ship and that's a very exciting thing because I've followed their work for many years and I've followed their evolutionary thinking, like their own self-exploration of what a Sustainable Table looks like and they've been really open about not entirely being sure, especially in the early days, I remember, and and moving through what it could look like. Do we need to do this? Do we need to do that? And it feels like now there's that culmination, the realisation 
that regeneration is absolutely where the focus needs to be. Uh, and one thing that we know for sure is the corporatization uh, and um, and the tech uh, uh, hold that seems to be forming over the food system is absolutely not the way forward for human or planetary health. Uh, so I'm thrilled to have you there. I'd love to know um, what your initial moments were, what you saw the body of work emerging to be as, as you as you started to work at Sustainable Table. Must have been big. Uh, it, uh, yeah, look, it was really big. And I think the thing that we've continued to stay true to is that um, there is a humility in our lack of knowing exactly what the true direction needs to be. I think um, we started as an organisation that was very much about storytelling, very much about uh, taking those that were ethical in their inclination and wanting to know what that looked like through the food system and, and what their role could be in it. You know, we took them on really practical, through really practical steps to understand how they could um, contribute to a more ethical outcome. And that was really needed at the time. You know, a decade and a half ago, that was critical. There wasn't that kind of information readily available. That's abundant now. And so, um, as you say, we definitely went through an evolution and we were really open to being pretty emergent. And that's one of the practices that we are really committed to still, and that's to be emergent. We don't necessarily know what the answers are, but we do know what we're seeing on the ground and we do know what we're hearing from those who've been in this sphere for decades and decades and been curious enough to to look at a, an alternative approach to commodity production. Um, and I think we've just created um, a, a document that Tanya Massey, our industry development manager and key researcher, has delivered called Regenerating Investment in Food and Farming. And we've called it a roadmap. But she has this. She tells this beautiful story about um, it being a roadmap that is sort of a bit like a map that's been kicked in the dust for young kids that are heading out to work out how to how to do the next muster of sheep that are over the back and beyond. It's not specific, and it can't be specific. We've got wayfinding markers that allow us to know where we need to go, but we don't actually know who the key players need to be and, and how we actually reframe that. Because what we unpacked, I guess, in this research was a series of principles that told us that um, we can do all we like in the regenerative farming sector, but if we haven't got capability to enable them, and that's largely through cash or through access to, to funding, um, in a way that is is aligned, then we're actually talking two different languages. So at the moment, we've got a really strong and emerging regenerative food and farming and fibre sector. We've got a really strong investment sector in Australia, but one is extractive and one is regenerative. And until we actually build the bridge and frame expectations so that both of them are completely on the same page, we actually can't move Regen Ag forward in the way that it needs to be moved forward. We're looking at really, really long, slow, patient timeframes. And we're, we're looking at unpredictability like we've never seen before with climate impact and, and a need for rapid adaptation. We're looking at... Um, returns that don't necessarily make sense to an investor and they certainly don't when there's alternatives on the table around that tech revolution that you were talking about a moment ago uh, that doesn't necessarily build a long-term picture of of 
sustainability and permanence for us as humans on this really brittle continent. Yeah. And so we need to kind of consider how we how we bring the two together. And, and amazingly, there are definitely funders out there, both philanthropic and impact investment, who are really eager to play in this space and are slowly beginning to shift their understanding of what their role in this needs to look like. Yeah, wow. Um, and you mentioned their investment uh, not looking like the, the normal returns an investor would look for. Um, and uh, I always uh, kind of half joke with people, but it is tragic um, that you, know, <laughs> you have to think about like good farming. Uh, you're never going to see the biodynamic lentil farmers ad on the side of a bus um, because no. there simply is not the marketing budget or profit in that structure to then put the ad on the bus. Uh, but really that's also um, indicative of the fact that if we wanted to go for the biodynamic organic lentil uh, and beef farming options, um we possibly wouldn't need those ads on the side of the bus. And there's, it just gets bigger and bigger when you realise what a return to regenerative agriculture actually would look like if we really went hard. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it's big. And so how do you then convince those investors uh, that it's the way forward? Um, through deep relationship and through ongoing conversation and education. And we're not alone in doing that, which is incredible. We, you know, we've got the likes of the IPCC saying things like we are four years into the critical decade and with just a 1.5 degree increase, we are looking down the barrel of, of a changed human existence. And we're rapidly hurtling towards that 1.5 degree increase. And so things like that are, are known fact and they're not they're no longer debated. That's being discussed globally, and so we don't necessarily need to to beat that drum on our own. Um, we've also got people like the National Farmers Federation undertaking annual surveys, and the most recent survey told us that just over 30% of farmers in the last 12 months considered self-harm or suicide, and that is bloody horrific. That gives me goosebumps every time I say it or think yeah. it. And well, we've seen it in India for decades, right? And we're seeing it in our mm. own backyard. I've yeah. just spent the last week in Western Australia and and the reality over there is that we've got systemic issues that have taken decades to build and break and, and then we've now got, you know, whole systems collapsing over there. Um, you know, we also know that we've surpassed six of the nine um, um, ecological measures and we can't undo these things if we don't have the support of everybody. We can't just be relying on our farmers who are growing our food and are the, are the predominant land stewards of this entire brittle continent. And so we actually need to find ways to support them and help them. And that, as a bare fact, is pretty compelling and, and brings people on the journey with you, but it's pretty frightening too. And so finding ways to make these conversations feel hopeful and feel encouraging and exciting is really what we need to be doing and bringing relationships to the table that don't tip in their power dynamic once you bring someone with money to the equation because they have the money and that's enabling but they don't have the skills or the multi-generational knowledge to, to manage this land and also we're looking really closely at how we can enable and how we can share the voice of our First Nations 
brothers and sisters who have knowledge that we can't even begin to to fathom you know the way they have landscape scale farmed this continent for thousands of years is is knowledge that we need and we need it now we needed it three decades ago 10 decades ago but we we now know blatantly that it's time and so absolutely and when you see some of the historic data on what the landscape used to look like in different parts of our desertified uh, portions of the country, it it just shows that with a lot of commitment and work and listening and learning, uh, that that is actually, yeah, deep learning. That is our best chance of, um, of I don't want to say going back there because it can never be the same. Uh, no, exactly. and we wouldn't want for that either. That's no. not the world we're living in. It's, it's okay not. to bring a whole heap of Indigenous knowledge to the fore and and to move forward yeah yeah but but lean into that with humility and and evaporate our colonial arrogance to see where that can go because we can't come at this in the way that we've come at it for the last 200 years we need to to find a way to to listen and build those relationships of trust and so we've kind of got this oxymoron where we all need to align and we need to collaborate and we need to act really fast but we can only move at the speed of trust and we need those relationships to be really trusted. And so that takes time. So we have this sort of quandary where we we need to sort of beat the drum and get everybody in the same way of thinking. And it, and division is not the solution either. So, so finding camps to belong in and building your tribe that becomes aggressive and assertive towards others actually doesn't provide a solution either there actually needs to be a way to, to unite on this and and move towards a stronger humanity that is in absolute connection with its ecological surrounds oh, i could not agree more uh jade it's been heartbreaking to see uh i, I suppose in a way the pandemic politicized food even further um because once you took your side let's say in the pandemic you were then starting to be convinced of a whole bunch of things on a side once you were siloed, either way. And so therefore, you know, Bill Gates becomes a saviour on one side and no one knows anything and you can't believe you're told, you know, anything you're told on the other side. And then it kind of creates this awful division and pain and uh, outrage. Cultural toxicity. That's sort of a Yeah, cultural... it is cultural toxicity. That's a that's great term. We haven't got time. We've, we don't have not... time. Yeah. Um, well, certainly why I wrote my second book, it's all about the overlaps. You know, we have to agree on what we know for sure and then you come at it from your angle, fine. But what we know for sure is regenerative farming works if we put the investment in. We know for sure that food waste is epidemic and a huge emitter. And we know for sure that ultra-processed food damages not only the planet but our own health. And then you can choose whatever freaking diet you want. I don't <laughs> yeah, care. That's right. Um, but, yeah. you know, those things we know for sure. And uh, that's why I just love the work you guys are doing to really drive deep change because we can all chat about it on the internet as much as we want. But unless someone's putting the money and the education in the farmer's hands to make it possible, um, then we're not going to get anywhere. And so a question I have for you in this huge report that you guys put together and, and commissioned and, and sought so much um, input from, are there case studies out there that are plausible to then take 
to the government, take to big investors and say, look at what we are achieving, what this person is achieving in, on this land that no one thought anything would ever grow again and yet they're reversing desertification. Have we got those projects here in Australia? I know of a few, but you must have seen some pretty amazing stuff. Yeah, we've seen some incredible stuff and they're really brave and not only are they brave in the approach that they're taking with their ecology they're really and their farming practices they're really brave in the way they push back on the cultural suffocation that can surround them and so often they are outliers in sectors or geographies where they don't have a whole lot of support so often they're pretty brittle too because they're in a position of um you know they're they're in isolation and so not just isolation depending on where they're based but um we do we've got them right across pretty well every sector so we've got them in new farmer pathways we've got them in wheat production or grain production we've got them in um in you know urban foodways we've got them in pretty well every sector that the food system can be divided into we're seeing absolute heroes step forward and have the courage to create initiatives that might be shunned by the, the greater populace but that are experimental in such a way that then lands and is shared in an open source form of generosity that we can can spread that to anybody who's wanting to have a crack. And so um, I don't know, is it worth talking about some of the tangible projects? You know, we've just been to the, Hag- the Haggerty's, Ian and Dar Haggerty, they're in um, WA. They're just three, three or four hours north of Perth, northwest of Perth. And they, are, are, they use natural intelligence farming as their predominant um, land practice method and essentially that is much like most regenerative farmers it is to to lean into the addition of life as opposed to taking away life they're not burning their stubble they're not adding glyphosate in tons they're not um, they're not seeding into to harrowed paddocks they're seeding into organically covered paddocks in that you know they have grass products still on the ground they're crimping rather than rather than burning and they're drill seeding with biology so those seeds are inoculated with a biological solution before they're going into the ground and then even without rain so they've had one mil of rain in the last eight weeks and we were just walking their paddocks that have uh, sown and self-sown crops that were three and four inches high it was unbelievable to see and I said to someone as we were driving out I feel like we've just driven out of a place of heaven where you can still see remnants of deeply rooted life in every paddock, even if it's a paddock that's just been sown. And we were driving into blackened, smoke-filled skies where other paddocks, which had really broad and visible salt pans and completely open, barren, barren, desertified paddocks were just burning their stubble and there were black billowing was black billowing smoke going into the sky and it felt like we were moving from one extreme to the other and it you just it was so palpable it was actually quite emotional to be seeing the two in such deep contrast and they border paddocks you know that they border fence lines and you can see one next to the other so extremely differently but to refer back to what I said a moment ago there's no point or value in us um, creating division because what we need to understand is that the those who have chosen this noble direction of farming and land stewardship are doing what they know 
are doing what the system has asked them to do, are doing what the system sometimes gives them no choice but to do. You know, there are systemic measures at play with things like, um, you know, live export markets being shut down overnight that changes the playing field outside of anybody's control and takes the certainty away for, from people to, to have a go in different directions. There's limited ability for processing. Like there's only five or six abattoirs in WA. That is an enormous region to be covered with just five or six abattoirs. And what they can't do is guarantee that your carcass will be the carcass that you produced on your land because the scale is so enormous that and so much red tape to to try and i know tammy tammy jonas is trying to do a bunch of activism uh to try and get localized abattoir permits so that people can have more control and you can say these chicken livers are for sure the organic chicken livers from this farm yeah yeah, yeah, it's not set up. So our system is set up for commodity production, but our gut health and our communities and our um, our need for re-establishment of biology within our regenerative farming practices really requires us to localise and it requires us to have, you know, support mechanisms at all levels of the supply chain that can be uh, localised and deeply understood in relationship and with trust at the core of all of it. It's a huge shift, isn't it? It is it's a massive paradigm shift. And I feel like I say that a hundred times that I'm sure my children think that paradigm is my, my most used and favoured word. But it kind of is. We need to move away from extraction. And I say all the time that individuals have got the ability to enable change through every single decision that we make every single day because every single decision that we make has an outcome on a culture or a community or an ecosystem or a human or an animal. And yes, we can do that and together that becomes a force, but we actually also need to look bigger than that because sometimes they can put a huge amount of pressure on the individuals that are already trying to operate in a world that is rapidly hurtling in a different direction. And so that feels overwhelming for all of us. And if suddenly we're expecting us to be the only place of change, then that can be really daunting. And so, yes, we need to make decisions in our day-to-day existences and we need to come together with those in solidarity that are doing the same thing so we feel well supported in the the paradigm we we tend to want to live in but we also need to look to the levers and the system holders that um, the abstractive system that is removing our ability to take agency yeah absolutely and and then how do we bridge that gap um in terms of government because a lot of people you know even for example you think uh of green voting or left voting and then you think of right voting and there's paradox there as well because a lot of um yeah especially in agriculture right because the farmer wants to be able to do what they see they need to do on their land whatever the understanding is at that present moment of what that looks like um as you spoke about you know we do what we know um, but let's say the regen um, farmer sees their land, knows it needs to go a certain way, um, believes in climate change because, you know, obviously I can, I see, see, I can see it, I'm right here, yeah. it's happening. Yeah. Living it, feeling it. Uh, and then so you want to vote for some of the policies around social justice and, and climate that the left present, but then the left tend to overgovern and make a corporate decision because we're still stuck in corporate headspace 
about what you can and can't do on your land and we're seeing bizarre um, overreaching uh, meat reduction targets, say, in the state of New York. Instead of having a regenerative conversation, we're having a conversation of control. And so you're stuck between a rock and a hard place if you manage land, wanting a bit of what this team's doing but a bit of what this team's doing while not being awful to minorities and women, let's say. (laughs) And, you know, where do you go? And so this is where the cry for this working from our overlaps comes. And yet the average Joe who wants their vote to count can't quite see anyone uh, of prominence pulling it all together in a way that actually allows for... um, independent work and thinking while at the same time uh, a more socially just world and and a climate conscious world and I find it a really interesting just as someone who studied history and political science at uni I'm like whoa this is a really crazy time to be alive but at the same time it's awful <laughs> it's just like Come yeah, on, yeah we know what we need time. to do can we all just hug and get on with it please I, th- I think um There has been such a siloed and reductionist approach to politics in the last two decades, especially, maybe three, that it's really difficult for us now to unpick that way of being and and rebuild really complex webs that are really reflective of a natural ecology. So nowhere in the natural environment is, is there... Um, a reductionist approach taken. Everything is deeply interwoven and interconnected. And so difficulty is that we are dominated by short-termism because our political cycles and our... And our economic. Well, and our economic, yeah. yeah. So those who are in positions of influence at a CEO level are operating in three to five-year cycles. And so that is never, ever going to give us the ability to actually rebuild the systems that we need to, to look at this more holistically and as long as we continue to look at things in a in a siloed or reductionist way that is dominated by short-termism then we are it's really difficult to actually get deep adaptation to to be applied to all of our systems least of all our agricultural system which requires potentially decades to to be rebuilt Um, so these conversations are starting to happen but again, we've got division within the agricultural sector because you've got um, cultural differences between those who are farming, you know, commodification, taking a commodification approach, and those who are taking a regenerative approach. And actually, we all just need to put our bloody heads together, and we need to put semantics aside of whether or not we're farming agroecologically or regeneratively or organically or biodynamically, or you know, all of these terms just serve no purpose but to confuse the shit out of everybody. We actually put it all aside, realise that um, everybody who wants to take on a role within land stewardship needs to be honoured and needs to be celebrated and needs to be heard and listened to and and enabled. So um, this work is just beginning. We're just starting to work with a few incredible key partners across the country and that doesn't just mean in the agricultural sector because there's there's other sectors that are as you say in that overlap area around um you know food access and um deep localism and um uh you know economic localism you you know these sorts of things are all starting to give us the ability to and, and ecology and you know um an ability to connect those that have a little bit of overlap 
starts to build your voice and it starts to build a platform that becomes relevant to more because I think very few people actually value the food on their plate enough because it's been so easily accessible at such a low price for so long that we're happy to waste it. And if we don't start to, to change people's understanding through the food system, then there are other ways to have conversations with them, whether it be through waste or through food access or through health or through, um, you know, everything from your gut biology through to your the health of your regional communities. They're all things that have the ability to overlap. So if we can find those overlaps, then we can take messages to build policy that isn't so reductionist. Mm. And do you think that starts at like a local council level? Yes, and and I think I think everything to do with this conversation is yes, and and that's the hard part. Because there'd be Americans listening right now, people from Europe who who all feel the same. You know, the low tox community gets it. Um, we get what needs to happen, and we want to start seeing people come across tables and aisles around the world to start having effective discussions that give us a real shot at um, fixing the land, which helps us, you know, sort out our, our biology. And I guess that's why we focused on investment because mm. it's such an enabler and it's yeah. so powerful that it gives those who currently don't have a lot of voice uh, in this sphere um, an ability to be heard because they can put case studies on the ground that are, are really powerful and, you know, there's still a desire to see tangible data and outcomes and that, that aren't just social or ecological outcomes that are sort of financial and all of the above. Like we need to create benchmarks that everybody can relate to so that it, it crosses those paradigms and starts to make sense to a broader audience so that we can start to build policy from the top down to support the initiatives that are happening from the bottom up. Yeah. And do you feel like removing red tape from farmers is one of the key ways we're going to make more rapid progress? Absolutely. Because Especially for small scale. We constantly hear about small scale farmers coming up against it in all sorts of ways. Uh, mm. You know, I'm not allowed to sell some milk to my neighbour down the road or, you know, just yeah. I mean, so many stories. Yeah. Of, I think um, it's more predominant in the small scale yeah, okay. or regenerative movement simply because all of our systems now are, are curated or created for the larger scale commodified growers and so for them it works well actually it doesn't it's still broken but it has worked for want of a better word for the last 10 years 20 years maybe you know and we get told all the time but how do we feed our globe without large-scale production well actually the western world is looking at large-scale production but the rest of the world does not they still operate operate in a localised environment where they can feed their community and there is mutual obligation and there is mutual aid at play where, you know, those local communities have got the ability to feed themselves because they've got the skills, they've got deep knowledge, they've got um, that mutual obligation that I spoke of and they make sure that no one person is in a, a fatter position than anybody else because they're only as strong as the community that they're in. So it's a total shift of thinking and we actually need to go back to some of those more localised Indigenous oriented thinking. And we also need to think, start thinking longer term. You know, we need to think about the skills that the generations five and six and seven generations before us had. And we need to think about the needs of our kids and the five and six and seven generations in front of us are going to ask us, you know, you used 
an extractive approach to use energy beyond measure, beyond anything that we could possibly fathom now. And you used well beyond your share of it in just a couple of decades. And now we sit here and we haven't got the ability to rely on tech solutions. We actually need to understand the ecological systems around us so that we can work with it because that's what's holding us. Mm, yeah. It's big, isn't it? And so... Really big. <laughs> someone that Sometimes it's a bit this. overwhelming. It, yeah, that's where I'm headed to bring us home for mm-hmm. the next few minutes. Mm-hmm. You hear it, you know it, you see, you know, you go to a talk. I mean, I remember the first Joel Salatin talk I went to. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was a major fangirl. It was about 12 years ago and, I, and he was <laughs> showing these d- desertification reversal projects in um, Mexico and various parts of America, really diverse parts of America, I would say as well. And and he was proving that these regenerative methods, it wasn't even using that term back then really, um, were having unbelievable effects. This rotational grazing principle, let all the animals be their you know, themselves and do their thing. And you the start chickenness to, of the, chicken. the chickenness of the chicken, exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, you start to see the healing of soil, uh, you know, right through to waterways and systems. It, it, it was incredible to me that there was evidence this perfect, like pictures of before and after, after the, the putting in the steps in a new place. And it worked. And then we started to see, you know, the work of Peter Andrews here, Charles Massey, and like some really amazing thought leaders in our Aussie space. Um, and, And you think, why is it so hard for everybody to see these people as heroes? And that's for me when I come up against the, oh, the gross domestic product theory. That's why it's so hard because they headbutt each other, right? Endless growth. They do. Endless yeah, growth. Yeah, that endless growth paradigm is really dominant. And it's dominant across our political spectrum. It's dominant across our, um, well, all spectrums really. It's entrenched in our culture. And so we actually need to reframe that and understand that we can actually create magic that is in harmonic balance with us as a species at a smaller localized level, but but you know that is not palatable for a politician to get up and say, "Let's push back on growth. Let's not grow jobs. Let's not grow the housing. Let's not grow the economy." Like that just wouldn't happen. That, it's totally not palatable. But not palatable, and and also um, kind of scary, right? Like it's literally been the words they've used forever: more jobs, more this, more that, um, and. And so the average Joe would probably vote dead against someone who said, I'm not actually going to provide more jobs. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, that's right. So it would, you know, it would just, it would never float. But the reality is that our ecology is hurting so badly that if we don't start to change and shift the way we function, then we risk losing the very foundation that all of this highly complex fractured system is built on and the cracks are so visible already we've got supply chain issues in this country and so our ability to feed ourselves and dress ourselves and transport ourselves is already being impacted and so we're seeing that everywhere we're about to go into an el nino and so it'll be interesting to see what that looks like another Um, el nino 
Yep. Oh, yep. Goodness. So all of yeah. So it's looking all of the evidence suggests that that's exactly where we're heading, and it's going to whiplash really quickly. And so, um, you know, the impact of having had a La Nina that has just given us absolutely um, enormous growth, then backed by a, a big hot dry session means that you then get these very strong feedback loops that reinforce that weather pattern and those those climate impacts. So managing that on the land is complex and difficult. And as the person that's at the other end wanting to buy food and understand why they can't get inexpensive watermelons because they've just had back-to-back flooding or um, inexpensive wheat because they've just had years and years of drought or inexpensive lamb because they've, you, you know, had some of both, um, it's really important that we start to to really join the dots as individuals and, and find a place, find a way to make decisions that are bigger than just us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you hear of Italy having crisis meetings because pastors had to go up 20% of the average, uh, you know, middle-income Italian family. That's a huge chunk of cash on your weekly budget. Um, and 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 yet the average person, as you say, disconnected from where their food comes from, just knows to get shitty at the price rise but doesn't necessarily know that there's actually work they can do every day to do more about how we then sustainably change that uh, story um, and connect more deeply to where our food comes from. And that's a, it's a bloody tough ask because the is. general Joe is working their guts out just to put food on the plate of any sort. And, and very and busy. To make rent, making <laughs> rental repayments and juggling kids and all the activities that we think we need to have them at. And, you know, we are so highly geared in our debt-based economy that we are absolutely noosed. And so it's really bloody tricky to say to people, well, actually, you need to know where your food comes from and you need to reframe the way you do your weekly shop and you need to go to five different places so that you can get to know who your farmer is. It is a really tall order and a really tough ask. So I guess that's why Sustainable Table moved away from talking specifically to consumers and we are now looking at the systemic issues because... It's not a tough ask. Well, it is. It's almost bloody impossible. But <laughs> it's not as hard to say it's not your fault as an individual. It's actually the system's fault and we all need to find ways to to reframe what that looks like. As individuals, though, we are a custodial species. So we've got this amazing ability to use our hands to build skills and to create beautiful things. We've got an ability to use our heart and be led by that. And we've got an ability to use our head to make sense of all of the pieces but we don't just have to use one of those you know that's what makes us magic that we're capable mm. of of complex thinking and complex intertwining response. it all yeah 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 and and so what do we do what does the average person do i live in the city i'm already direct to farmer shopping for 90 percent of our food uh worm farm uh, write books that's in my sphere of influence luckily uh, but that the everyday actions, what do you feel like are the most powerful ones that we can really put at the forefront of our priorities? If if we have a limited headspace right now and someone wants to start and they're listening to this thinking, gosh, I want to be a part of the solutions that makes it easier for these conversations to be successful because they see enough market indication and demand 
for change because I think that's a really key part of that personal responsibility piece. One, two, three items a week. Change it small, but change yeah, it yeah, now. Yeah, something. Don't start with one thing. Yeah, I say all the time start with one thing. But I think the very, very first place, I also say find your people because then you're in solidarity so that you don't feel quite so strange pushing against the tide. But the very, very first thing that every single person can do and you can make it relevant to who you are and where you live and what your life looks like on a day-to-day basis is to reframe success and to define enough. What what does enough look like? How much is enough? I think there are plenty who will be listening who have more than enough and that that endless push for, for more is um, actually the problem that we're we're trying to unpick that we're trying to reframe and enough looks different for everybody and that's okay but you know do do you need that new thing do you need to upgrade something that's already working beautifully do you need to prioritize health and human interaction and relationships over stuff and and biggering and mooring reframe success success is healthy beautiful conversations with your family it's an ability to have a bit of spare time up your sleeve so that you can interact and contribute to the broader community it's seeking to learn new ways of thinking because you've got spare time to do it and you're not so exhausted that you you just need to watch whatever is spoon fed to you on mainstream media it's pushing back on that and and finding a little bit of headspace it's you know, making sure you've got time to go for a walk in the morning or in the evening after dinner because you've you've not committed or overburdened your mind. You know, it's it's really looking at your mortgage and trying to work out whether or not you need to scale up on that mortgage or whether or not you could scale right back. You're a beautiful example. You're living in a tiny apartment right now. I know. Life is beautiful. It life is. Life is wonderful. Chronic illness, uh, well, acute to begin with, but then a chronic journey, uh, has been uh, an amazing gift in the sense that and I wouldn't wish it on anyone. I will say that though it was awful and and um, and tough. And but having to strip back, losing all your savings to health, and doing all all that kind of intense moving around that we did, all of those things, we still had each other. And once we felt better, uh, it was literally everything. And for me. It was the realisation that as long as I can put good food on the table and I can visit my family overseas and have a sense of adventure every now and then, those are literally the, I've got enough. That's my enough. Uh, and, and a dry home. <laughs> yes. That's, yes like no we, you know, we used to look at ads, I remember, and think, oh, no, we've got to have that and it's got to have this and it's got to, I just go, yep, yeah, just dry and two bedrooms. That's literally and a bit all of sunshine. I need, you know, and a bit sunshine of sunshine on the balcony. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Uh, With a friend um, who's got time to pop in for a cup of tea. Exactly. And life is just so much more simple and lovely and wonderful at the other side of those realizations. Um, and unfortunately, humans are so apocalyptic. It's like we need the shit to hit the fan. Um, in some way, like for the circuit breaker, I think, to make you reevaluate or to really bring you to your knees and rebuild in a more meaningful way. I think life is quite cyclical that way for us. Um, and everyone's got their own stories of what that looks like. But I agree. And everyone's enough is going to be different. Like 
friends of mine can't believe we're living in this tiny place. <laughs> I'm like, honestly, yeah, sometimes it sucks and we go, oh, I just don't want to be inside my whole family all the time. But, um, but you know, there's a lot of great bits to it as well. Gives us a, a heck of a lot more freedom to do something like travel um, by being somewhere really tiny. And yeah, that's um, right. And you know, that's just yeah, I, I agree. So that maybe it could be um, it could be sitting down as a couple, as a family, as yourself, and actually journaling around what enough means. What is it? What are your 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 top threes like that really make you feel like life is good? And that changes too. And then there's a whole heap of indicators. So you know, if you're enough, is having having beautiful connected relationships with your kids. Mm. In order to have that, you need not to be so full because as soon as you're full, you're you're your attention span is diluted, your patience is diluted, your engagement and genuine interest in conversations is diluted. And so it, it does actually start to erode what one of your your main sort of enough indicators was. So it, it's really good to be able to check back in on that and say, you know, I've yelled at you a lot. The kids will often say to me, your enough isn't being met right now because you're yelling at us a lot and you're yelling at us because, because you're busy. And they're right. They're exactly right. It's just making sure you've got ways to check back in on those really simple measures that that sort of frame what success needs to look like. Mm. Yes, I've, I've as we speak, I've got a, a teenager coming back from school because he doesn't feel well. And, you know, my initial feeling is, oh, I've got so much to get done today. <laughs> it's going to be here. Um, but then I just thought, okay, no, my enough is his health. That's actually, that's the number one. And so I'm going to tuck him in, get him his hot soup and make sure he's happy with a book and I'll keep working and that's okay. That's right. And I think, you know, I, I totally resonate with what you said there as a um, as a check back in when your kids say you start yelling. Like when you feel the feelings rise, why is that? And look yeah, at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. And you're not yelling them because they've left dirty socks on the floor. They do God that every no. day. Yeah. You're yelling because else is too full and there's no room to deal with the dirty socks on the floor yes oh, but actually absolutely. they're the most important thing so mm. not the dirty socks clearly the kids so yeah <laughs> yeah to clarify. Really yeah <laughs> it doesn't cost anything it does take bravery it does take you, you being willing to sit down and actually quantifying what enough looks like for you and then doing something about it and staying true to that but everyone doesn't matter how busy and full and stretched your life is. Mm. And what a relief to just actually go, oh, my enough. Actually, those are on top of my enough. And I feel stressed having such a full week. So yeah, let's ditch those. Mm -hmm. And then chances are they cost and then a bit of don't cash. Get on, don't get on social media because then you'll start to recalibrate what your enough needs to look like. Oh, yeah. Start to see what everybody else is doing. We'll push back and just mm. put it down. Yeah, I often say in my my coaching program, business coaching program that I have, it, you know, if you are following people that are doing like all the things to be in business and that it freaks you out every time you see them and you think you feel a sense of lack around you and what you're doing or not doing rather, uh, then you actually have to press unfollow. Unfollow as much as you possibly can till you actually curate a space where you feel uh, like it's a nourishing and relaxing thing to have a bit of a scroll every now and then with a cup of tea instead of an exhausting and daunting and um, and awful experience. Like I really love my little 
social media curation. I just get inspired by everybody. And I think um, those little squares fail to tell you that people um, are still working at midnight, or they've been yeah. doing it since they were twenty-two, yeah. and now they're fifty-two. I, I, they just—they don't tell you that there is. They don't tell you the whole story, game. and that, no. no. And so, you know, things are slow. People say that to us all the time at Blackburn Farm. Wow, what a dream! What amazing! How how amazing to be living like this! I would love to be living like this. And I'm really quick to say anybody could, but to do it, you you've got to give it. Like it's taken us twenty-five years to get here, and We've both been completely united on the same page. We've sacrificed lots of frivolity and holidays and and um, spare time, and we've worked two full time jobs really for the better part of fifteen years. Both of us, even though we work part time in theory on both of them, you you can't you, to do it. You make a huge huge contribution. So it looks beautiful and it looks romantic, but it is bloody hard work. And so ask those questions ask how hard it really has been and then understand what enough needs to look like and and what's been driving people to do that oh jade i could talk to you for hours so uh everybody hop to your farmer's market and feel inspired this weekend find one carve out the time because those conversations and that one little mandarin that you buy, uh, if, yeah. that's, if that's all it is this week, as you dip your toe in and start to change your own personal food system, um, then it starts to, un- for me, it starts to un- unravel a huge sense of possibility uh, as we as we shift those shopping baskets from products to produce. And, and it me- means you keep asking questions. It yeah. starts you to be a bit more curious and stop being apathetic about the thing that you do three times a day and really take a bit of agency in what your role in that looks like Mm. and be curious Mm -hmm. and thank you for your role as you take it big and you drive for systemic change I'm so excited and our community is here at the ready to uh, share anything you ever need us to share to get it um, out there as well thank you Alex and thanks for having us on the show you're very welcome And that is today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder, we have so many fantastic shows in our archives these days. If this particular topic was helpful to you, head over to lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast and click on the podcast directory, which gives you food, body, home, mind, and environmental health topics segmented so you can see all the shows that we've done in all of those areas and head straight to what you want. A reminder, we also have 10 fabulous e-courses that I've written with various doctors, naturopaths, health professionals, and experts over the years to support you on your low-tox journey, whether it's making daily swaps, getting ready to make babies, looking after your inflammation, you can hit the courses tab on lowtoxlife.com to explore those. And lastly, I would love to meet you on socials. Go and head over to at lowtoxlife on Instagram or find us on Facebook. It's always such a pleasure to chat and see how you guys are going when you share favorite shows and share them with your friends. I absolutely love that. A little reminder, of course, that all of our shows are not intended as medical advice. They are intended to open the minds and hearts of people and maybe help you explore something you hadn't considered yet, but please always check in with your health professional. And one last little request, if you have time to leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast, that would just mean the world to me because it helps us get out there and have other people have confidence that that thing they're considering pressing play on is absolutely worth it. 
I'll catch you for the next show you tune into. Thanks for joining me again. This is Alex Stewart, founder of Lotox Life.